Our gospel lesson for today comes from the third chapter of Luke, beginning to read at verse 1. Together, let us listen for the word of God. In the 15th year of the rule of the emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea and Herod was ruler over Galilee, his brother Philip was ruler over Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was ruler over Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. God's word came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. John went through throughout the region of the Jordan River calling for people to be baptized to show that they were changing their hearts and lives and wanted God to forgive their sins. This is just as it was written in the scroll of the words of Isaiah, the prophet. A voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill will be leveled. The crooked will be made straight and the rough places made smooth. All humanity will see God's salvation. Then John said to the crowds who came to be baptized by him, you children of snakes, who warned you to escape from the angry judgment that is coming soon? Produce fruit that shows you have changed your hearts and lives. And do not even think about saying to yourselves, Abraham is our father. I tell you that God is able to raise up Abraham's children from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and tossed into the fire. The crowds asked him, what then should we do? He answered, whoever has two shirts must share with the, with the one who has none, and whoever has food must do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. They said to him, teacher, what should we do? He replied, collect no more than you are authorized to collect. Soldiers asked, what about us? What should we do? He answered, do not cheat or harass anyone and be satisfied with your pay. The people were filled with expectation, and everyone wondered whether John might be the Christ. John replied to them all, I baptize you with water, but the one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to loosen the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The shovel he uses to sift the wheat from the husks is in his hands. He will clean out his threshing area and bring the wheat into his barn, but he will burn the husks with a fire that cannot be put out. With many other words, John appealed to them, proclaiming good news to the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So it's hard to get through Advent without a visit from JTB, John the Baptist. On occasion, he is pushed to the sidelines as a quirky, almost comic book character. We've all heard, and some of us have even preached, sermons focused on this strange man's funny clothes, strange diet, and scary pronouncements. I joked yesterday that his fire and brimstone message might be just the thing to warm us up today. 
But even when we try to take him seriously or take him seriously, he is often reduced to being simply a forerunner of Jesus, only a messenger. But what if John is more than simply a warm-up act for a coming king? The names and places in the first verses of chapter 3 read like a Jeopardy category. I'll take obscure biblical names for a thousand, Ken or Mayim or whoever's hosting this week. The names sound foreign and the places seem obscure. However, in order to get to John, we must first be introduced to Tiberius and Herod and Annas and Caiaphas. And before we get to the River Jordan, we must glance over at Iturea and Abilene. Luke names these people and places not simply to give us material for a Bible trivia game, but to help us situate John and Jesus in a real time and a real place. These two men did not live in Neverland or in a distant magical kingdom, Luke wants to tell his hearers. But here, among us in our own backyard... It's also striking that Luke names not only political leaders, but the religious power brokers as well. John does not fall into either of these categories, and yet the word of God comes to him. A nobody in the middle of nowhere. John does not have enough power or prestige to warrant any attention from these figures at first, but he has tremendous sway among the people. And he is the one who is entrusted with a clear message. He is called to prepare the people and to repair the way for the inbreaking of God's kingdom. As my friend and colleague Jarrett McLaughlin points out, while the realm of human politics is characterized by confusion and multiple competing voices, the kingdom of God is clear. There is one voice, one way, and one figure to present it. And that figure is John. Now, we often picture the desert as a place lacking everything needed for survival, let alone an abundant life. But throughout Scripture, the wilderness is the place of miracle and divine revelation, of pain and complaint, of hope and visions. In the wilderness, Moses and the Hebrew people receive manna and the law. In the wilderness, Jesus will encounter temptation and find his purpose and his passion. And in the wilderness, more than once, God makes a way of redemption and revelation, as is the case here with John. While we do not have the chance to hear God's exact word to John, we are told that John winds his way through the region calling for people to be baptized and to show that they were changing their hearts and lives and wanted God to forgive their sins. So John is concerned with repentance and with forgiveness. Repenting means changing direction and changing our hearts and lives and the Greek word for forgiveness literally means a letting go. As Jarrett points out, this baptism points the crowds and us toward a double release. God lets go of our sin. And we let go of it as well. Early last week, I came across an article by a priest named Tish Harrison Warren entitled, I'm not ready for Christmas. I need a minute. My first thought was, has she been spying on me? Has she seen my house or my completely unfinished Christmas to-do list? 
But Warren is not talking about the fact that there are no ornaments on the tree. She's talking about the gift of Advent. She says, I'm not ready for Christmas yet. I cannot force myself to barrel into festivities and holiday cheer. I need to take a minute. I need a season to notice, reflect on, and grieve what we collectively and I individually have walked through this year and the past few years, really. She says, I need to take stock of where I am and how I got here. She says, Advent is a season of hope, and part of practicing hope is noticing where we need it. Another year has gone by, and we still live in a world in need of mending. She says, this is the very world of heartbreak, Christians say each year, into which Christ came and will come again. Warren's words strike something deep within me. These past 20 months have changed me. In the midst of the hustle and bustle, I need a minute or more than a minute to take stock and catch my breath. I need to pay attention to where hope is needed for me and for the world. And I think maybe John's words are inviting us to just such a task, urging us to pause, to reflect, and even to let go of a thing or two. Now, for children anticipating the arrival of Santa Claus, we encourage a kind of repentance of its own before Christmas, right? We sing songs encouraging not pouting, not crying, and being good for goodness sake. And I don't want to cause anyone's blood pressure to spike, or maybe I do, it might help your temperature go up. But in just a few short weeks, Christmas to-do lists will be a thing of the past, and many of us will turn our attention to lists of another kind, New Year's resolutions. We will repent in a way. We will promise to be better, to do better. And the message in both cases is simple, be good and get the goods. Be bad and get coal or nothing or an expanding waistline or a leaner bank account. Not surprisingly, John speaks to something more profound and more gracious. John does not shy away from proclaiming God's judgment, and he understands this judgment to be an opportunity for us to be better, and in so doing, we prepare the way of the Lord. But this is crucial. The message of judgment is never separated from the message of salvation. In fact, the message of salvation comes first. Rather than be good and get the goods, John's message is that the good is already ours and that repentance changed minds, changed hearts, and changed lives is the result of gratitude. For the salvation made known in the one who is coming. I don't know about you, but I find it fascinating that the crowds actually stick around after being called children of snakes or a brood of vipers in other translations. And after hearing that underperforming trees will soon be thrown into the fire. I think they may stick around because they know they're not ready for Christ's coming and they want to be. So they do stick around and they ask them, what what then should we do? Notice that John does not tell them to drop everything and be exactly like him. He does not direct them to abandon their lives and join him in the wilderness. Instead, he invites them to live good, faithful, transformed lives right where they are. For John, this getting ready, this preparing the way begins with letting go. 
Those with plenty of coats or shirts and enough food are told to share. Tax collectors are not told to find a new job, but rather to let go of greed and be fair in the job they currently hold. Even soldiers in an occupying army are not told to walk away from their service or their power, but rather to set aside the desire to abuse their power and choose instead to serve with integrity. So the new way is not far off or hard to find. New life is right in front of them, breaking into this heartbreaking and heartbroken world. To be ready, they and we must be willing to take stock, to let go of the old ways and embrace the new one. As we've heard already several times today, today marks the third Sunday in Advent, which traditionally is known as Joy Sunday. Joy and John seem to be an odd fit at first. Repentance is serious business. John the Baptist is far from light and fluffy. And yet there is joy woven in and through this text. Because joy is not the same thing as happiness after all. Marie Kondo tells me that paring down my stuff and hanging on to my most treasured things will bring me joy. But I'm convinced that joy is deeper and more powerful than that. And I suspect that finding joy may have more to do with letting go than hanging on, even to my beloved, tattered Davidson sweatshirt. The past two years or so have revealed so much about us, about what we truly need, about what we can live without, and about what actually brings us and others joy. I've been reminded that joy is found more in savoring hugs from family members and friends than making sure the table is set just so. Joy is found more in singing hymns and even saying the Apostles' Creed together in here than a typo-free bulletin or a glitch-free service. I've been reminded that joy is found more in celebrating baptisms of squirmy toddlers, squawking infants, and anxious preschoolers than impressing for the picture-perfect moment. Joy is found more in laughing with friends around a table than in ridiculing those with whom I disagree. Joy is found in letting go of my hates and my grudges, listening to the hurts and hopes of others, dialing down my need for perfection, putting aside my impatience with others' failings, and releasing my futile and stubborn attempts to control or manage every last little or big thing. Joy is found in hearing and believing that I am saved, not by clenching my teeth and getting it all just right, but by grace and grace alone. John tells us that Christ is coming. John tells us that his coming is great good news, reason for joy, in fact. And he's right. Christ comes to walk with us through every valley and wipe away every tear. Christ comes to offer us true and everlasting joy. What then should we do? Maybe, just maybe, we can take a minute to unclench our fists, let go of our grievances, and prepare room in our hearts and in our lives for this one who will never let go of this heartbreaking and heartbroken world or of us.
Thanks be to God. Amen.